evening is the Star of Bethlehem. And what I want to do, and as we've already done a little in the warm-up here, is to make sure that you have a chance to talk about the things you want to talk about in astronomy. I want you to have a chance to forget the rain and a few other things. We're here to enjoy ourselves and maybe to learn something at the same time. Maybe have a laugh or two, because I think learning takes place better when a person is having a good time. I, I want to give you an example of that. I teach physics, as I mentioned to you, and astronomy, and things are not always that easy in a physics class. The tests are not always that terrific when they come back. And the other day, I had an experience where I told the class, now I'm so disgusted with this group for these low grades, I want all the dumbbells in this room to get up. Well, nobody got to their feet. And finally, one student in the back got up. I said, you mean to say you admit you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, but I hate to see you standing there by yourself. <laughs> well, you know, you have to ride with punches. In fact, I'm just reading a pretty good book now on the relationship between health and laughter. I don't know whether you have seen this. It's on the bestseller list right now. It's called The Laughter Prescription. And it's written by Dr. Lawrence Peter. I don't know whether you ever heard of the Peter Principle. The Peter Principle is a law that everyone, sooner or later, since you do a good job, you always get a better position, right? Well, eventually, you must get a position where you can't do the job anymore, and so you stop there. <laughs> so the Peter Principle, which is a kind of funny idea, but gives you a little something to think about that everybody eventually reaches his level of incompetence. <laughs> well, Peter has now written this book, The Laughter Prescription, partly because Norman Cousins, a few years ago, was sick with what they considered incurable cancer. They didn't even operate, I guess, and they sent him home, and he decided, well, if that's the case, he might as well laugh about it. So he started reading joke books and things, and pretty soon the cancer went into remission. And Norman Cousins is alive and well. So he talked to Dr. Peter about this, and he and some other comedians got together and did this research on the connection between laughter and health. Well, I believe very strongly in that, and I, uh, I will interject a little of that as we go along because I think it always makes it easier to learn something if we don't take it too seriously. And I say that for a very important reason. The topic of the Star of Bethlehem is really a question of two fields of learning. In my view, and this comes from interviewing scientists around the world, and if people are interested, my book is up here on the results of talking to the Nobel laureates and others about the question of where does science stop and where does other learning begin? And I am absolutely convinced from talking to these people that every question that you can bring up will fall either into the area of scientific learning or it will fall outside of that area of scientific learning and it is a religious question. One scientist told me that any question that begins with what or how is a scientific question. But any question that begins with the word why is beyond the scope of science. 
This was the fellow who got the Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor at Bell Telephone Laboratories, Dr. Walter Bratton. And he said, tell your students that they should carefully word their questions. And you carefully word your questions so that any time in a test you ask something begins with why, then the right answer is, God only knows. And in writing my textbooks, I am repeatedly tripped up on that. And when I get the test back, and there's a why question, and a student writes, God only knows. Now, he is obviously getting out of it from what I want him to say. But it is teaching me to word the question more properly. It doesn't mean that when a question begins with why, that it is not as important as another question. It merely means that there are questions we cannot answer with the scientific method. So what I'm going to talk about tonight is what we know scientifically about the Star of Bethlehem. And when anything comes up that goes beyond what we know scientifically is a what and a how question, I'll have to say God only knows. It means we cannot answer it with present techniques. Maybe we will learn some other techniques later, but at the present time, it will be a why question. You see, when we read the account, and it is a very well-known account, of course, of people following something in the sky, we have to come up with some kind of explanation if we claim to be scientific. We have to say, well, I think I know what happened, and that's called a theory. Everybody has the absolute right to think about the answer to a problem. In fact, every scientist has to do that. You have to think of a possible answer before you even check it out and come up with a conclusion. So what I'd like to do to start out with is to read the account and then make a list of the things that need to be explained. Now, we know that the story of the birth of Christ and the Star of Bethlehem is told several times in the Bible. It's not told anywhere else, by the way. There are no other accounts. So this is all we have to go on. And we have to reconcile these accounts if we are going to come up with some kind of conclusion. And the first thing we have to try to decide is when this occurred. Well, let's start making some lists here. What do we know about the time when Christmas occurred? Well, the first thing that comes to mind and that everyone is familiar with is B.C. and A.D. Obviously, somebody in the distant past did some research and came up with a suggestion that at a certain point we should start 1 AD. And since BC means before Christ and AD means Anno Domini or in the year of our Lord or after Christ, somebody thought they must have good grounds for saying this was the year in between and therefore was the date of Christmas. Now the person who did that was Dionysius. Exiguus. Dionysius Exiguus was a 6th century monk and he decided to use the history of the Roman Empire to date BC and AD. And he came to the conclusion with 
the material available at his time that Christ was born 753 years after the origin of the Roman Empire. And therefore, he said, we will use the year 753 after the Roman Empire, which is what they were using at that time. 753 was the year used in Rome uh, to have calendars. And they said, now we're going to change that from 753 to 1. He made one mistake by doing that. He said anything before 1 AD is 1 BC. And everybody knows that between 1 BC and 1 AD there should be a zero. That should be the real division. But Dionysius Exiguus, being trained in the Roman numerology, did not know about zeros. There were no zeros in the Roman number system. You've seen Roman numerals. That's 18. And here is uh, 53. There are no zeros in there. In fact, if you want to modify those two numbers, go right ahead. What method that you learned in grade school are you going to use here? The Romans didn't know how to multiply. All they could do was add. All they could do was add 18 53 times and come up with an answer. Therefore, already we're off by a year because Dionysius Exiguus did not know anything about Arabic numerals. First mistake. Secondly, it was later determined that Herod, the king, died in the year 749 by this system after Rome. While we know from the account of the birth of Christ that Herod died after Christ was born. Well, if Herod died in 749, how could 753 be 1 AD? Couldn't be. So here's another error of four years. So we know almost certainly now that the system for our calendar, 1983, is incorrect by at least four years. That the birth of Christ very probably is four years earlier than Dionysius Exiguus thought it would be. So according to best modern research, the birth of Christ took place in 4 BC, which is a kind of an anachronism to say Christ is born four years before the birth of Christ. Now, we need that in order to come up later with astronomical dating of events in the sky that could have been the Star of Bethlehem. Now, in addition to that, for the year of the birth, we need to know something about the time of the year, because only in that way are we going to be able to correlate events that were known to have happened at that time with the actual time. Now. The thing that helps in this respect with the dating of the birth of Christ as far as seasons go is the shepherds in the field. Now, are shepherds in the field at certain seasons only is the question.
are shepherds out there only when it's warm enough so that you can have shepherds grazing or are there some seasons in Bethlehem that are so cold that they have to have the sheep in the corral and therefore it could not have happened at that time. Well, for a long time it was felt that obviously the shepherds were in the field in spring through fall and certainly not in the winter, certainly not in December. But shepherds who graze their sheep in Bethlehem today have testified in accounts that they indeed go out on the field with their sheep all year round because the climate in Bethlehem is such that that is possible. And there's another reason for it. Sheep are so important, or were at that time at least, for sacrifices and for other purposes in the temple that a large quantity was always required and so they very probably had to graze many of the sheep in pastures in the field. What I'm saying is that there is no way of using the story of the shepherds to tell what season of the year the star of Bethlehem or the birth of Christ occurred. Well, what about the dates we use? December 25th and as you may know, December 25th is the date for Christmas only in the Western world. In the Eastern churches and in Eastern countries, in Russia and other places, January 6th is Christmas. Now, why those two dates? Well, let's get to, let's get to the first one first, December 25th. It's important to realize that, first of all, the date December 25th and January 6th, neither one, was observed for hundreds of years after the birth of Christ. The celebration of Christmas in the first place is a later thing. It was first considered almost idolatry to celebrate the event in any way at all. It is still considered by some religions to be idolatrous. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, do not use Christmas trees, do not celebrate Christmas at all on that specific day. So why did the uh, people around the 3rd, 4th century begin doing that? Well, obviously because they wanted to commemorate the event. But why did they choose this date? The best scholarship today indicates that December 25th was chosen for one of two reasons. It either was chosen because around December 25th is the time of the winter solstice And that is the, uh, the time, of course, it's the beginning of winter where the sun stops its southern movement in the sky and comes back north again to start warmer times. And that was celebrated in Roman times with great merrymaking because it's an event that's very important. If the sun didn't stop and come back again, it wouldn't get warm, we couldn't grow crops and things would be all over. So there were celebrations around the, the time of December 21st. And at the time, December 25th was probably closer to the winter solstice than December 21st because of mistakes in the calendar. The calendar, which is the earliest reason for astronomy in the first place, was not that accurate. It had to be straightened out later. In fact, by the 13th century, the calendar was so far off, they were so incapable of measuring the length of the year that spring began 11 days late. And a pope at that time, Pope Gregory, said we've got to straighten this out because celebrations of various 
uh, events are all off, and we've got to bring the calendar back in line with the sun's motion. So he made an edict in which they dropped 10 days out of the year in February 1582 and said, we're not going to have those days at all. We're going to go right from one day to one 10 days later. That was the great switch to the Gregorian calendar, which is the one we use today. Now, many non-Catholic countries at the time said, we're not going to go along with that because a Catholic pope is not going to tell us when to have a certain day of the year. And the countries, therefore, that did not go along with it are now 10 or 11 days behind. And therefore, January 6th is Christmas and uh, December 25th in those countries. And it took until uh, late in the 1800s, in fact, that England went along with the Gregorian calendar, which is now called the New Calendar. Now, the Gregorian calendar is different from the other one in another way. It not only dropped 10 days out, but it does not have leap years at the same time that it used to. It is not true that there is a leap year every four years. That's the old Julius Caesar calendar every four years. The Gregorian calendar does not have a leap year every four years. For example, the year 1900, which was four years after 1896, was not a leap year. 1800 was not a leap year. 1700 was not a leap year, but 1600 was and 2000 will be. So the Gregorian method, which was invented by an astronomer at the time of Pope Gregory, drops three leap years every 400 years. And that keeps the calendar in line with the sun and the stars. Until about the year 5000, and then we have to drop another one. But we won't worry about that right now. Okay, that much for the, the time. There is in other words, general agreement that 4 BC is more accurate than, well, there was no zero, than 1 AD. There is one other clue before we read the account and get down to the theories that have been advanced on what the star really was. And that is that in the book of Luke, it says that Mary and Joseph came to Bethlehem when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, for a long time, there was no record of a Quirinius at all. And many people said, ah, that must be just a fable of some kind. There is no Quirinius. Well, then archaeological discoveries were made, and it was found that Quirinius indeed was governor of Syria, and his spelling is a little bit different from one translation to the next that Quirinius made his census and asked people to come to their hometowns not at the time of 4 BC, and now it gets a little sticky, but rather by our reckoning 6 to 7 AD. Now we have a spread of the possible time for the star of Bethlehem between 4 BC and 6 to 7 AD, 10 years. Either that or Quirinius was governor of Judea at another time and started his census 10 years earlier but didn't finish it till 6 or 7 AD because as you know it sometimes takes a long time for a political thing to be accomplished and that the account should really read that Quirinius finished his census of Judea 6 to 7 AD. 
Well, now we're ready. What do we know about the people who came and followed the star? Well, let's see what it says. It says that soon after Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea, some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, I'm reading this from the translation of the American Bible Society, which I think is a more accurate translation from the literal Greek than some others. And you'll notice that it does not call them wise men. It does not call them astrologers. It just says some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem. So it establishes the fact, if we indeed accept the account in the first place, and a person who doesn't accept it doesn't have anything to study, if a person says it's a myth, then it, a person who works in a science laboratory and you bring him a question and says, why is this happening? you would certainly not say, well, that's a myth that you're bringing to me. You wouldn't work there very long. If we're going to explain what it says, we have to take it as an accurate recorded event. To change the wording and say, this is probably what happened, is a cop-out. Then we might as well write the event ourselves. But if we're going to take the uh, account as it is written, we have to try to match what we know about astronomy with what it says here. Now, it says they came from the east. Now, we know that Babylonia is east, of course, of Jerusalem, and we know that the Babylonians were well known for their astronomical knowledge. In fact, the Babylonians were the ones who made up the signs of the zodiac that are used in astrology today. The uh, zodiac is the zoo around the sky uh, where the sun moves. That's what zodiac means. The animals along the ecliptic or path of the sun. So the Babylonians named Leo and Pisces and Gemini and all the others. So they probably came from that land because there was no other country known at that time to have that kind of information on the movements of the stars. And they came to Jerusalem and they said, where is the baby born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it came up in the east. Now, at the time of the, the birth of Christ, the system of astronomy that was in vogue and that uh, we today do not believe can be used to explain the movement of the planets was the Ptolemaic system in which the Earth is in the center and all the other objects rose and moved and set around the Earth. In that theory, you see, in which the Earth is in the middle, the Earth is not a planet, it's the center of everything. And the Sun is a planet, and the Moon is a planet. And it was that system that was used to name the days of the week. There were seven planets in that system, and there are seven days of the week. Each day is named after a planet. Sunday, Moon Day, Saturn Day, and I'll leave the others to your imagination to see if you know which planet fits which day. And if you're Italian, you can do it because on the Italian calendar, one is Martiti, that's Mars. Who can give me the others? That was the Ptolemaic system. Another one has to be Jove or Jupiter, and so on. Well, if the Babylonians then were familiar with the stars rising in the east and setting in the west according to the Ptolemaic theory, that would explain why they said, we saw his star 
when it came up in the east and we have come to worship him. Now King Herod heard about this and was very upset. Obviously because King Herod was a tyrant and therefore he did not want another king to be born. He was going to get rid of any uh, challenge to his throne. He called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, where will the Messiah be born? Now notice that it does not mention that at the time they came into Jerusalem, they were still looking at the star. Herod didn't say, let's go out and look at this thing. So obviously, from the account, it seems that the star moved and then disappeared or stopped moving, that not even the wise men from the east could tell where it was pointing them. Obviously, they wanted to go to Jerusalem because either the star led them there or they felt if a king was to be born that's the place where it would naturally happen since Jerusalem was the capital of the land. Well, but now they're stuck and they don't know where to go. So he goes to, they go to Herod and say, get your wise men together and help us decide where to go next. And now it gets interesting because the scribes and wise men of Herod, whom I like to call the wise men from the West, start doing their research. How long, we don't know. Maybe for two years they were in Jerusalem. And there's a reason for saying two years later on, studying the literature. And they came back and said, we found it. We found the place where it says you should go. And the place is written in the book of Micah, which was in the Old Testament. And it says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the cities of Judah, for from you will come a leader who will guide my people Israel. So the wise men left Herod, and I will never be able to understand why the advisors of Herod did not follow them and say, let's see where this thing in Bethlehem is. To me, it is a perfect indication of the fact that if a person believes something no amount of other information often will change his mind. It is obvious to me that Herod and his advisors did not want anyone to be born in Bethlehem who would rock the boat, and therefore they didn't go. They didn't go. But the people from the east, for whatever reason they had in Babylonia for looking for this newborn king, got out and said, we're going to follow your advice. And then it says, So Herod called the visitors from the east and said, You go, you go to Bethlehem and make a careful search, and when you find the child, let me know so that I too may go and worship him. Which is a big fat lie, because what he meant was, Come back and tell me so I can go and kill this future king. And they left, and on their way they saw the same star they had seen in the east. Now, the star that appeared and disappeared, now reappeared, and moved in a different way, in a different direction, because Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Not very far, you can walk it in a few hours. And it says, when they saw it, how happy they were, what joy was theirs, it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Now we're in astronomical hot water, because now we're talking about a star that is so specific that it stops over a point and says here, 
this is the place. And it was the same object, it says, that they had seen earlier. And there's another difficulty for a scientist in this account. And that is, I told you the Ptolemaic system of the time of the wise men said that the sun and the moon and Saturn and Jupiter and Venus were planets. They made that word up. The word planet is a Greek word that means a moving object. They knew the difference between a star and a planet. So the person who wrote this account would not have used the word star if he meant planet and vice versa. I want you to bear that in mind when we talk about some of the theories in just a moment of what astronomers have advanced as an explanation or possible explanation of this account. Well, the rest of the story we don't need to uh, spend a lot of time on because it has no bearing on the star anymore. It says when they saw the house, they went in, they didn't question it, they said, well, this looks like a pretty lowly thing here. How could a king be born in this place? But notice that it was in a house. It was not in a stable. The usual presentation of the shepherds and the wise men, everybody being together there with the cows and the horses, is inaccurate because it says they came to a house. This means that it is at least the next day. Joseph could have moved into a house the day after the birth, and certainly he wouldn't want to stay in a stable, so he didn't do it that night. So if we're looking for dates in history of the Star of Bethlehem, at least it has to start the next day. So now, what have we established? It was anywhere between 4 BC and 6 to 7 AD. It could have been at any time of the year. It could have been a long period of time between the time the star first appeared in Babylonia and then it finally stood over the house. And almost certainly, it was at least 10 hours after the birth of Christ. The next morning, he could not easily have gone into a house any sooner. Now come possible explanations. Well, what kinds of objects in the sky make people pay attention to what is going on? The first thing and most remarkable one we're not talking about an eclipse now. It could not have been an eclipse because that occurs for a few minutes and they hardly follow an eclipse. That's the opposite. It gets dark, it doesn't get light, so we've got to rule out eclipses. But what about things flashing through the sky? All of you, I'm sure, have seen meteors. A meteor is a brief flash anywhere from one second to at the most a minute of time where some bright thing goes through the sky. And people invariably say, oh, did you see that? Well, by the time you look, it's not there anymore. Well, what is a meteor? A meteor is a piece of dust or even a piece of rock that burns up in the sky. Or if it doesn't burn up, it will land on the ground and be picked up and studied as one of the original particles of the universe. But it doesn't last long enough to be leading anybody anywhere. At the most, it will flash for a brief time and call attention to the sky and be gone. So meteors can't possibly be. But the next thing that is similar and even connected to meteors and lasts much longer is a comet. Now everybody knows that the most famous comet of all is like the uh, one of the reindeers of Santa Claus and that's, well, the comet is the, no it's not Rudolph's comet. I, I think there may even be a Rudolph comet, I'm not sure. But 
what is the comet that is coming in 1985-86 that everybody's going to get out and get excited about? Halley's. Halley's Comet has been sighted now about two months ago and is right on target. It's only a few days off. It hasn't been around for 75 years and it will be back in 1986 in January. It will be closest to the Earth at that time. I have a long tail. When it was here in 1910, it created uh, all kinds of excitement. There were even people who went out and sold comet pills so that if the Earth goes through the tail of the comet, they won't be asphyxiated. And that first made a lot of money because these pills worked. Everybody who took them did not get asphyxiated. And there will be people back who will do that again, I'm sure. Well, was it Halley's Comet? Records show that if you back off Halley's Comet every 75 years, you end up in 12 BC. A little bit out of the framework here, right? 12 BC. There are people who think it was Halley's Comet and have believed that for hundreds of years. Because Halley's Comet and comets stay different amounts of time, but in general they take weeks to move through the sky. Halley's Comet takes about six weeks from the time you'll see it with the naked eye until it disappears again. So the huge telescope that find it last month but by the time you and I see it without help, or maybe with one of Curie's instruments here, we'll be able to see it a little sooner than, well, I'm going to make sure we see it sooner, because by that time we'll have these things set up at the beach here for viewing. We don't see how this comes before other people do. Well, is 12 BC possible? An artist in the Middle Ages painted a scene of the birth of Christ in which he showed Halley's Comet as the star of Bethlehem. The artist was Giotto. And this painting has been memorialized now by the fact that one of the spaceships that will go up and look for Halley's Comet and maybe bring a piece home to study has been named Giotto. The United States, unfortunately, because of budget cuts, is not going to send a ship up to park next to Halley's Comet and get a piece to study. But the Japanese will, already are starting to build it. The Russians are, the, the Germans are, the Italians are. The United States can't afford it. <laughs> Interesting. We've done all kinds of things, but we have to rely on Giotto and a few others to bring it back. Well, the comet theory is not bad. It has a tail that could point and if it's not Halley's Comet, maybe it was another one. Maybe it was one that only appears once, and that happens. There are many comets that just appear once and they're gone. They don't all come back. Some come back every three years. Some come back every few days, the ones right around the sun. But Halley's every 75 or six years, but a one-time visitor, was it a comet? Well, it's easy to postulate for bringing the wise men to Jerusalem that the comet may have moved from the eastern part of the sky, as it says, and ended up in the western part where they had to go for Jerusalem. But to come up again and then end up over a house, there we're in trouble. It is quite possible that the word star would even fit for a comet, but that's about it. So there are some bad questions to answer there as far as a comet is concerned. Let's go a little more into remarkable events in the sky. Every so often a star in the sky becomes very bright. We even name cars after it, Nova. 
Now the word Nova means new. For a car I can see it, but for a star it's not a good name because a Nova is not a new star. A Nova is an older star that has flared into brilliance and can get very bright for a short period of time and then die out. Now, very large Novas have been recorded in history way back in the Chinese times. There's a possibility because we don't know whether in Jerusalem there were Novas visible since astronomers in that area or the people who kept records of these things did not record one. The Novas that were visible in China, the dates don't fit. One of the most remarkable Novas of modern times occurred in 1934. When one gets really big, it's called a supernova. And there's one of those about every 400 years. And if you want to worry about something, I told you part of these lectures are to make you relax, so I don't want to throw something and make things worse. But the last one was 400 years ago. And there are astronomers who believe that the sun might be the next one. And if it does, if the sun does become a supernova, then of course no life exists in the solar system after that since a supernova will expand its volume many times and the Earth will be literally inside the hot part of the sun and the Earth will come to an end as a burnt crisp. Uh, will that occur? We don't know. We don't know much about the sun in the first place. We don't know what makes it burn. We don't know where its energy comes from. We know it's restless. Well, that's a little on the side about a supernova. What's left? What kind of ideas? Well, I mentioned a Russian scientist before. One Russian has proposed, and they like to do this because no one else has proposed it. And as I mentioned before, science and pseudoscience in Russia does not have the sharp dividing lines that it does here. One Russian has published the theory of the Star of Bethlehem that the star itself was the spaceship that brought the cosmonaut Christ to the Earth. Now, have you seen that in a movie recently? Yes, you have. Superman. Superman was embedded, in, in fact, in the movie Superman. And the last time I was at Gurney's here, we had a movie producer in the audience, and we had quite a chat about this, who knows Ray Bradbury and the others. And he says, uh, some of the ideas the producer has are very esoteric and uh, nobody's going to tell them what ideas to have and what not. You don't have to see the movie if you don't want to. But obviously the star of Bethlehem had an influence on the story of Superman because he came in this... In fact, when we saw the movie, we saw the artwork in the movie that is very similar to the illustrations on Christmas cards. He came flashing through the sky and landed on the earth here so obviously the people who drew the Superman comics and made the Superman movie agree in principle at least that people will read and go to stories that have that association, that something could come here from outer space. Uh, it's not too different a theory from the theory that says that life began on the Earth by some particle blowing in here from outer space that it had to start somehow, you know, life had to begin from something, and if the earth was dead, then something blew in and started thriving. So that's all I'm going to say about the theory, because there's no other thing going for it except that it's a wild idea nobody else has proposed. But the part I'm keeping for the last is, was it a planetary conjunction? 
Now, a planetary conjunction means the meeting in the sky of two or more planets in a small area of the sky. We saw such a conjunction last year, where three planets came relatively close together. We were talking before the lecture about the uh, very popular book called The Jupiter Effect, where supposedly when the planets line up behind each other, there's going to be some kind of pull on the Earth that will pull California into the Pacific Ocean, and that will upset the inner ear of your head and make you do crazy things and so on. Um, and the only thing that is true about that book is that it made a lot of money for the people who wrote it. Because they later recanted and said that they miscalculated and that it is not going to happen. Well, we know it didn't happen because they predicted it for 1982. And not only did California stay pretty much where it was, but the planets did not line up the way they had predicted 10 years earlier. The closest they got together was about 90 degrees or halfway between the horizon and the zenith. But it is now possible to take a computer and go back and see what planetary conjunctions might have occurred at the time between 4 BC and 6 to 7 AD. Now, one of the best magazines I can recommend to you as an amateur astronomer is Sky and Telescope. And in Sky and Telescope magazine, in 1968, December issue, an astronomer took a computer and lined up all the planetary conjunctions to see if there were any remarkable ones. Well, there were 200 planetary conjunctions between the period of time we're talking about. But only two that were really close. And those two I want to briefly mention, and then I'm going to show them to you in a slide. Because they get very close to the right dates that we need here. One of them took place in 3 BC. Jupiter and Venus. Let's, uh, let's put the conjunctions down here. Two of them in particular. I want to back up a little more and take another one first. From 7 to 6 BC, Jupiter, Saturn, Mars. In Pisces, 6 to 7 BC. A little too early, you notice. But the reason this one has been selected out of the 200 as being the most likely theory for the star of Bethlehem is because these three planets came unusually close to each other within less than a degree in the sky, not 90 degrees like the Jupiter effect, but less than the diameter of the moon. And it occurred in the constellation Pisces. Now, Babylonians would naturally put significance on this for several reasons. They named the, they named the constellations of the zodiac, as I mentioned before. And they chose Pisces as the constellation that has particular significance for the Jewish nation. Jupiter is the king of the gods. Jupiter, the planet, is the largest planet of all. You can take all the other planets and put them inside Jupiter and have plenty of room left. Saturn, the whole business. Jupiter is by far, of all the material in the planets, the predominant thing. This is one reason I don't believe in the Jupiter effect, because Jupiter has 94% of the mass of the planets, and whether the other planets line up and pull in any other direction doesn't really make any difference. Saturn is the uh, 
the God of the protector of the Jewish race, according to Babylonian lore. And since Jupiter, the king of gods, and Saturn, the protector of the Jewish race, met in Pisces, the constellation of the Jewish nation, any Babylonian who knew these uh, stories in connection with these stars and planets would, in such a conjunction, see a reason for thinking that something important is going to happen uh, in the Jewish nation. Mars, not, that isn't even that uh, important as far as lore is concerned, but now you've got three there, and it would have made a brilliant object. Also, the movement of this conjunction can be shown over a period of several weeks to have moved from the eastern part of the sky toward the west in planetary motion. That's one. The other one, which I think is even more spectacular, is the one I mentioned before, is Jupiter and Venus. in the constellation Leo in the year 2 BC. Now Jupiter, we heard again, is the king of gods. And if a king is to be born, that represents the king. But Leo has even more meaning than Pisces, in my view, uh, in the Bible, because after all, the wise men went to Jerusalem and said to the biblical scholars, find something that will help us tell where this king is going to be born. And they quoted Micah where he talked about Bethlehem. But there is another passage in the Old Testament that speaks even more specifically about the constellation Leo and in connection with Judah because Christ was from the lineage of Judah. That's why Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because they were uh, from the family of Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You hold your enemies, this is in Genesis, by the neck. Your brothers will bow down before you. Judah is like the whelp of a lion. Now, Leo is the constellation of the lion. And when I show you the constellation of Leo a little bit later on the screen, you'll notice that there is a star in Leo called the Wealth of the Lion. Now, it so happens that this conjunction of Jupiter and Venus took place in such a way that Jupiter and Venus got so close together that you could not split them with the naked eye. Now, if you have good eyesight, and look at the Big Dipper, and look at the two stars at the end of the handle. Starting from the end of the handle, the next one is a double star. That double star has been used by ancient armies to tell who has good enough eyesight to get into the, into the war. Mizar and Elkhor are so close together that only a person with 20-20 vision, or corrected 20-20 vision, can identify it. So anybody who said one star, uh, didn't make the draft, and the guy said two stars, he got in, and three stars was drunk, or whatever they used for telling, uh, that's for splitting the stars. Jupiter and Venus were closer together than Miser and Alcor, and it was right next to Regulus. So Regulus and these two together were a brilliant conjunction of planets in a constellation that could be identified with the passage in the Old Testament as being of special significance to the Jewish race. Now, does that theory hold water? Could it have been 
a planetary conjunction. Well, let's go back to the account again and see whether it satisfies the condition. It could have started in the eastern sky in the country of Babylon. It could have led them to Jerusalem. And then it could have disappeared under the horizon during whatever time was necessary for the scribes and wise men of the West to study the accounts and then appear again as a conjunction later and lead them further. But again, we run up on the rocks in the same way we did before, and that is that it could not have been possible for a conjunction of planets to move and then to stop and point out a specific house where they should go. So that leaves only one explanation, and I will tell you that after I show you the slides. Okay, so if we can have uh, the lights, please. I'd like to show you some photographs of the theories I have just been talking about. That's an introductory slide. It's not any one of the things I mentioned, but uh, in planetarium shows on the star of Bethlehem, and this one I borrowed from the Vanderbilt Planetarium in Centerport. If I had a polarizing lens here, I could make that star move in front of the machine. But I'm introducing another thing here that, of which you may not be aware. If you've ever been in the city of Cologne, Germany, you will see this beautiful cathedral. The reason this cathedral was built centuries ago is that the people of Cologne, Germany, when they started building this thing, believed that they had the bodies of the wise men. And inside the church, you can see them. If you look down this huge nave, on the altar are three caskets, and those are believed to be the bodies of the three wise men. Now, remember that in the account of the wise men coming to Jerusalem, it does not mention a number. There's absolutely no basis for thinking that there were three. The reason three were postulated hundreds of years after the event was that there were three gifts. But it is almost, almost certainly untrue because it is almost impossible to imagine that three people could have endured a journey through the criminal infested deserts between Babylon and Jerusalem. It is much more likely that the wise men from the east had hundreds of people with them if they were people important enough to get in to see King Herod in the first place. So what you're seeing here is absolutely a tradition and nothing more. The three names that have been given to them are tradition only, Malfior and what the other names are. But the city of Cologne has a city flag with three crowns on it, which stands for the three wise men who are believed to be lying here. The artwork is superimposed, but the photograph is actual. The first theory I mentioned to you is a bolide. A bolide is an exploding meteor. Certainly it would have made a bright flash in the sky, but only for a few seconds. This was a, a photograph taken uh, with the help of an, a telescope like our Celestron here, which anybody can take with a little patience, just set the thing up and open the lens and leave it open for an hour or so and you'll see one. Maybe not as spectacular as this, but notice that the stars are streaks because they moved during the time that the exposure was made. 
And now we're to the comet theory. This is one of the recent comets. I'm not sure which one of the last few years. It stays up there for weeks and you follow it. You can take a picture like this in an exposure of maybe 15 minutes or so. The stars do not have very long streaks as you'll notice. And I thought I would throw in the photographs of Halley's Comet to show what it looked like. These are the most recent pictures of Halley's Comet, 1910. It was first visible through a telescope on April 26th, only a few weeks before it reached its maximum brilliance. To show about modern technology today, we have now seen Halley's Comet last month three years before maximum brilliance. So we have three years to study it, not only six weeks. Notice how long the tail got. We passed right through it. People thought, as I said, it would be poisonous. They bought pills to counteract the poisonous fumes and uh, there will be pills again. And notice that as the tail uh, gets shorter, it comes off. Each time around, the comet loses part of itself. Like a bar of soap, it gets washed up. How many times around can a comet go before the tail is gone or the whole comet is gone? We don't know. We were even not quite sure whether Halley's Comet would show up this time. Maybe it was already burned out. But there it was, June 11th. 1910 receding without its tail out to about the planet Saturn. It is not true that Halley's Comet is the most brilliant comet of all. It was not visible in the daytime. Comets since that time have been visible in the daytime. A picture of a nova. Not a very good one. I'll show you a better one. This is a nova found in the constellation Hercules in 1934. These are two actual photographs through a telescope using the same time exposure. That's how it looked one day, and that's how it looked a few days later. That's millions of times brighter. As I told you, if the sun would do this, the Earth would come to an end a day later because we'd be inside here somewhere at about 30 million degrees which is not the hottest temperature, by the way. In Princeton last month, they made a temperature of 75 million degrees at the Tokamak uh, fusion reactor. A student of mine works in the computer lab there, and he just brought me the news flash that they expect to reach at Princeton Tokamak fusion reactor 100 million degrees by 1986. And at that time, they hope they will sustain the first controlled nuclear fusion in the world's history and that, that will lead the way to non-radioactive nuclear power by the year 2020. I put this fellow's picture in here, Tycho Brahe from Denmark, because he was the first person to study uh, novas in a thorough manner, and he believed that the Star of Bethlehem was a nova. Tycho Brahe had other problems, however, that we don't have time to go into, among which is that somebody cut his nose off, and he had a silver one that he wore on special occasions. His pupil, Kepler, is, in my opinion, the world's leading astronomer. In the 17th century, Kepler, after 30 years of study, came up with the laws of planetary motion that are taking us to the moon and the planets. The first, second, and third law of Kepler of elliptical motion are absolutely brilliant insights into nature that cannot uh, be improved upon. They, they were pure inspiration, in my opinion. 
when a scientist like Einstein or Kepler comes through with an equation like E equals mc squared, there is no other explanation but to say that he took a leap of faith, as Einstein himself said, and comes up with an idea that has since been tested out to be true. The same thing happened with Kepler. Kepler's equations of planetary motion had far-reaching effects far beyond anything that could have been verified at his time, but have still found, been found in two or three hundred years afterward to be absolutely correct. And Kepler believed that uh, planetary configurations and conjunctions were responsible. I don't like this picture at all, so we'll go on to the next one here, of the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Both of these are actual photographs, but obviously not as large uh, through a telescope as I mean, you can't see them this way with the naked eye. Um, and the wise men certainly did not have telescopes in which to see it this way. But I am superimposing earthbound telescope photos. You can see Jupiter and Saturn this way through the telescope I have on the table here. Gurney's 11-inch Celestron is one of the finest telescopes on Long Island. And when we get this set up on clear nights here, you will see Jupiter and Saturn in this manner on a good viewing night, of course, with proper eyepieces for magnification. The first person ever to see Saturn and Jupiter like this through a telescope was Galileo. And Galileo got into trouble for doing it because he was led to certain conclusions in contradiction to what was believed at that time. Here is the triple conjunction I was telling you about before, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. And now imagine that taking place in, and here we have Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn in a straight line conjunction. And notice that Venus is not always round. This was also something that Galileo was the first to see because it takes a telescope to see it. And this fact that Venus is not round is one of the first proofs that the Ptolemaic theory of the movement of the planets was incorrect and that the sun is indeed the center of the universe and not or at least the solar system and not the Earth. And it was that uh, conclusion that led Galileo into all the trouble. Now the constellation Pisces looks like it does in the bottom, not on top. But the top one is an artist's conception of how you can take the stars and help you remember that it means the fish. So the constellation Pisces is below, that is visible at the latitudes that the wise men uh, operated in. Here we have Venus and Jupiter, and now let's put that one, the stars behind there in the constellation Leo. Leo is behind them there, Venus and Jupiter again in the constellation Leo. Now, I told you before that the Old Testament reference to Leo speaks of a whelp coming out of the tribe of Judah, and that Judah is a lion. Leo is the lion named by the Babylonians at the time of Christ. Here is the lion coming out of the constellation of the lion, this is Regulus. And the conjunction of the planets, as close as Mizar and Elkhorn, the Big Dipper, took place right next to this star Regulus in 2 BC. Okay, if we can have the lights again briefly, please. I want to make only one concluding remark before we have any comments or questions. And that is that, as I told you in the beginning, there is a certain point at which scientists that I have talked to around the world will tell you that science can no longer offer explanations. There are parts of the account of the star of Bethlehem 
that require a scientist to say that from here on, you must use different explanations or else dismiss the account altogether. And since, as an astronomer, I have the right to my own theory like everybody else, I believe, and of course I shouldn't say I believe in the theory because no scientist believes in theories. A scientist studies theories, he doesn't believe in them. He believes in love and motherhood and brotherhood, but not in theories. But I propose the theory that the Star of Bethlehem was a special event that was only visible to the Magi from Babylon. It doesn't mention that anyone else saw it, the shepherds, Herod, Mary, Joseph, nobody. Why not? Because, in my view, it was a miraculous occurrence in their mind only. And that happens. Look at Joan of Arc. She was the only one who heard the voices, you know. Finally got her burned at the stake. But it changed the history of France. That was not scientific, what she was hearing. But it was true. It was true to her, and true enough, so that she was absolutely convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was occurring. And that's more sure than a scientific conclusion, which is always open to question. The kings, or whoever, they weren't called kings for hundreds of years either. The people who came from Babylon and studied the stars were absolutely convinced that they saw the star moving and that it led them to a specific house. And they got in and had no doubt about it, and they left. And I think it is there for that reason to teach us that there are things beyond the scope of science that must be taken on faith. And whether you take it on faith or not is your free and open choice. But once you do, it is an absolute thing and not a scientific conclusion. And the most important thing in the whole story to me is, in this theory of mine, that when the wise men came to Jerusalem and talked to Herod, he, they did not say to him, we think this or we think that, nor did Matthew in recording the story say, it is my theory that the wise men did this or that. But rather, they went to Herod and said, get your scribes and philosophers and find what it says about this event, and they found it. But they did not follow it. And whether a person follows it or not is his own business. I believe that it was a miraculous event and that it led them beyond the shadow of a doubt to the place where the Old Testament had prophesied that a king would be born who was to be the savior. So that, I believe, is a theory that is beyond science, but that a person has to decide for himself. Now, we have a few moments left. If someone has a comment or a question, or even something about the telescopes, or about eclipses, or about other things that we've brought up this evening. Thank you very much. If anyone has to leave, I don't want to keep people any later than they care to stay. Mr. Cohen? I have a question. Yes. Um, are you saying that you think there was, there was some actual celestial event, but that it didn't fit all the, um, the circumstances written in the Bible? In other words, that it could have been a conjunction of the planets, but you know, it didn't uh, lead them to the exact house. That, was, that part was in the yes. It is certainly possible, I think, that the uh, 
astronomers, as they're called, or the men who studied the stars at Babylon, were aware of things that were to take place in uh, Israel. If for no other reason, and we didn't have time really to go into this aspect, which I find very fascinating indeed, that Daniel, the prophet of the Old Testament, was taken captive in Babylon, and in the book of Daniel, Daniel is, according to the account there, appointed the chief astronomer. Now, it certainly makes sense that when Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, that he taught the astronomers under him, of which he was chief, Jewish folklore and the Old Testament, so that ever after the time of Daniel, there is no question that Babylonians were familiar with what was to happen according to the prophets of the Old Testament. So, if these conjunctions of planets were seen by the astronomers in the East, it brought their attention to the fact that something important was to happen uh, to the children of Israel. If that made them move, or if it took two years for them to make up their mind to move, we don't know. Herod killed children two years and younger. Why? Maybe the wise men told him we saw his star two years ago, and he wanted to make sure. Maybe it took them two years to get there. We don't know. But what happened to that conjunction after they left Jerusalem can no longer be explained astronomically. And I don't. I think that's addressing the question. Well, as I say, the, uh, these two conjunctions are the only ones that we can reconstruct with computers today. The uh, other 200 are listed in here, but none of them are spectacular in this. Now, of course, it's possible that things could have changed in the meantime, and there were conjunctions in which we have no record. But the 2BC one, I think, is a pretty good candidate. The two authors I have here, uh, the best book on the subject, by the way, is by Dr. Uh, Meyer of Western Michigan University called The First Christmas, and I have used some of the material from his book in my lecture tonight. And the other theory about the other conjunction is taken from the Physics Teacher magazine, which is published here at Stony Brook University, and uh, reviews the uh, idea of the Leo conjunction. The Meyer one is the conjunction in Pisces, that's his theory, the physics teacher magazine a few years ago felt that it was this one. If you go to the planetarium at Vanderbilt, I have the script of their show. I've seen it many times. They've used the same show in the last 10 years. Uh, they go through all these conjunction theories and end up pretty much with the uh, suggestion I made at the end that it was a miraculous event. Uh, some of the best planetarium shows on this subject, I can tell you if you travel a country where uh, they're being held. I think the the most inspiring planetarium presentation of the star Bethlehem takes place in Minneapolis. Dr. Kaufmanis of the University of Minnesota has given the lecture on the star Bethlehem more than any other human being in this country. And uh, he has a fascinating show. And if you ever get around there at Christmas time, you're sure to take it in. Um, all planetariums do something with this. And the uh, Vanderbilt one, I think, is very good as well. Some of the slides I showed you work in that show. Is there any other question or comment? Yes. Could you explain a little more about comets? What, what a comet is? The question is, what is a comet? 
Well, one reason we're sending a spaceship up is because we want to find out more, of course. The best definition I've heard of a comet is that it's the closest thing to having nothing and still having something. In other words, it's a near vacuum. If a comet were across the street, you couldn't see it. A comet, according to the dirty iceberg theory of Fred Whitmore at Harvard, which is the most widely accepted theory of comets, is that a comet is a dirty snowball about a mile across. That means that it has frozen gases in it holding solid chunks of material. Where they come from, the most widely accepted theory of comets is by the Danish astronomer Jan Oort. And the region of the planetary system where they are believed to originate is therefore known as the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud is supposedly a halo around the solar system of debris left over from the formation of the solar system. And every so often, the pressure either of starlight, and starlight does exert pressure, or the planetary uh, effect of gravitation what is known as a perturbation, will dislodge one of the particles in the Oort cloud and it will start on its Keplerian path. When it comes near uh, the planet Jupiter or anywhere halfway through the solar system where the, the gravity of Jupiter is a factor, Jupiter will capture the comet and distort its orbit so it will then become a permanent member of the planetary family. That's the present thinking. In other words, it, it comes in, and the amount of perturbation of Jupiter will then determine whether its path will be parabolic and it will never come back. And those are also uh, on record. They come in and they go in there, they have an open orbit. Or if they're sufficiently perturbed that they become part of the Jovian family of, planet, of, of, of comets, which come into the sun, go out as far as Jupiter, and then in again. And in that uh, situation, they have three-year orbits. Uh, those are another short period comets. Halley's, which is, by the way, the only comet named after a person who never saw it. The comet is always named after its discoverer. My father's wife, for years, has been comet hunting because she wants one. There are cases on record where people have bought comets from each other. Somebody has seen two, I think it was somebody else. But anyway, it's always named after the discoverer, except for the Halley one, because Halley was the first person to suggest that comets come back. All the comets before his time were believed to be one-time visitors. Halley said, well, this, he thinks it's the same one, and he predicts that this bright comet will be visible again. And he died before it happened. But it did reappear the first Christmas after his death on Christmas Eve. And it comes every 75 or 76 years, as someone mentioned before, that uh, Mark Twain was born when it first came and died when it came again. All right, let me go a little farther into that. If you study uh, a lot of comets carefully, you'll find that it consists of the following parts. There is a very dense center through which stars do not shine. 
And then as it approaches the sun, it gets larger, but the stuff that comes out is very flimsy. The sun shines, through, uh, the stars shine right through it. And this flimsy part is called a coma. Uh, C-O-M means hairy. Coma paranesis, coma your hair, and coma the comet. And when you're in a coma, you're a little hairy too. <laughs> but stars shine through the coma. And this coma is then pushed out by the sun's light pressure, radiation pressure, and can have a tail millions of miles long. That's a white, curly tail. Then a second tail develops that's bluish in color. And that is produced, we feel, from spectroscopic studies by material being thrown out of the sun, hitting the comet, and pushing its material away, not just its dust. And so this double tail, which is visible in most comets, lends support to the fact that the comet, each time around, will lose a large share of mass, if it even has much in the first place. And some comets have not reappeared, because they probably went in pieces. But now there's more. If the comet recedes back to its farthermost regions, it leaves this dust trail behind. When the Earth passes through that, a great many meteors are sighted. And they're in fact made meteor showers. And there is one in November, there's one in August, there's one in December, and they're usually named after the constellation from which the meteors seem to originate. It is believed that the dust that is left in the trail of the comet that has receded, and the dust is deposited in a complete orbit. And each time we pass through there each year, this material comes to Earth. And if it's large enough, it will hit the Earth, and we can study actually the primeval material of our solar system. And the largest such piece in captivity is in New York City, right across the street from here. The 34-ton, uh, um, what is it? Anyhow, it was discovered by Admiral Perry in Greenland, and for a few beads and baubles, the Eskimos gave it to him, and they deposited it in the Game of Thrones Ferry. And last year, constructed a special hall, a media hall, explained it. If you don't see it fall, and if it's not an unusual object where it fell, it made it very difficult to identify this meteorite, but there are ways. So there is a relation between comets and meteors, and a lot of astronomers are eager to study the particles to see what we can learn about the composition of our solar system in the field. So we'll know more when Giappa comes back in 1986. We can park next to it and in the same orbit. In fact, we can help it if we turn the engine off. Gravity is going to give us the same orbit and we can reach out the same orbit. How big, we don't really know. Uh, some put that meteor in uh, New York City and hit it uh, in the wrong fashion. That, uh, well, maybe it even did a lot of damage. That people think that it almost split the Earth the way it is. The Atlantic Rift is believed by some to have been caused by a tremendous meteorite impact. And if a bigger one hits its way, it might split the moon all the And what we saw in the movie Meteor. There's one of the thousands movies ever made. <laughs> it was in the theaters less than a week. It was on television last month. And uh, we 
and such that we worked at night, so I haven't heard it yet. But friends, Sean uh, Connery, the whole movie is based on the idea that an asteroid is heading toward the Earth. What should we do? Sean Connery said, let's go up there with a nuclear device and explode it, but what if it misses and comes back? <laughs> now, um, just so we I haven't spoken a lot about these telescopes, but I do want to emphasize the fact that I know of no finer line of telescope instruments, and I'm responsible for Gurney's uh, being a dealership for Celestrons, than Celestron of California. It's the widest selling line of amateur telescopes in the country, and you'll see the display upstairs all the way from binoculars, and they're not small either. That's where Ferguson first start, because it has a wide field of view all the way up to this 11-inch, which is for a more permanent installation, and uh, you don't graduate to that for a little while. But um, the optics are superb, and if you are interested in getting into it, come back to Bernie's when we'll have more lectures on astronomy and, and lessons on how to observe the stars and other speakers who will help you of a hobby, and I know very few people who can resist it once they get started. It's the most useless hobby in the world, but whoever said a hobby should be useful. In fact, one person even told me, if you make money with your hobby, it's not a hobby. And it's a business. A hobby is supposed to cost you money. Well, I can tell you about how much these can cost you, but they're, they're well worth it. I have a friend, an editor at CBS, who got an 8-inch Celestron, not quite as big as this, from his wife for Christmas. How many years ago, Mark? Five years ago? This man is so hooked. I mean, he's been with us on eclipse expeditions in different parts of the world and so on, but he's so hooked on Celestron Telescope. He lives in Westchester County, which has light pollution, which has trees all around his house, but he can't even see the stars except about this angle. But he built with his own hands a an observatory with a swing open roof with a telephone installed and with his Celestron in there he goes to meetings of amateur astronomers every month all the way to Stanford, Connecticut. Last time I was with him was up in uh, Vermont at Stelfane where the temple of amateur astronomers is near Springfield. And he tells me and his wife verifies it that every clear night he commutes to Manhattan, to Madison Avenue, and every clear night he's out there. He's out there systematically going through the heavens with Burnham's Celestial Guide, which is the best one you can possibly have, page by page, making notes, sleeps a few hours, goes out there again. I can't keep up with that. I mean, I'm partly responsible for him getting that excited. Maybe not really very much, but at least I never expected him to go that far. <laughs> so that can happen. Beware. That can happen. And you're among a great uh, group of people going back to the wise men from the Thank you very much. Hope you come back Read your Gurney newspaper, and I will make notes on some topics that have been suggested. And if it's clear, we'll be out there with these instruments. And once you see Saturn, with that ring, very fun. Thank you. <laughs> this is the beginning.
Yes. Yes, we'll be here tonight. Well, who's new? Margaret, there wasn't be a good time that we should talk about the trip. How about right at noon? We know we'll be here. And we can meet you by the desk where you check in. Answer any good questions. We have had grandson was with him, he was 15. And his son, who was a doctor, we had a woman with us who owns a pineapple plantation in Hawaii, and who, Hawaii, and who took, you know, how many of her nephews and nieces, but remember that it cost her $40,000. And this was 10 years ago. But there have been surgeons with us, and students, and Attorneys, teachers, accountants, and and we have little reunions once in a while. One girl I remember is the secretary of the professor at MIT, at the Bill of Clientele. There are only a few groups going when it's far away like this. In the United States, upon Russia, there were three groups. Well, in the first place, who wants to go to Russia? It's not as exciting as this, right? No. And secondly, <laughs> the side trips aren't quite as <laughs> there is a kind of uh, well, there's a little friendly competition going on between the leaders. I can tell you who the other groups are. But I <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we meet there. And we they know you're going to be there. Oh, yes. And you know they're going to be oh, there. Oh, yes. And I'll tell you uh, what is unique about ours. And that is that we keep our group small. I have clients, I call them boys, who will say they're tired of being in large groups where the leader may be advertised for you go, but you hardly ever skip. And so that's why we're keeping this down to the maximum important. We have 30 reservations in Java, and we not take more. And so that everybody gets to know everybody, and in fact, we'll have a little together. But I'd like to build the
do it. There is one advantage to doing that, and you can pay for your coffee and taxes. Or part of Week every year? 
teacher to send me an invitation, I'll come out to your school and do it. Oh. I'll give you the, I'll come out to the school and show the Siberian yeah, expedition for an assembly. Yeah. I do that a lot. Boy, a lot of people do it. Well, Laura will just talk about what it's like to yeah. live in Russia. Stargate. Yeah, the star John told me that the Stargate. 